We'll hear argument first this morning, number 95-266, Kerry Jaffe versus Mary Lou Redmond. Uh, Mr. Flaxman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In Rule 501 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, Congress delegated to this Court the power to recognize new evidentiary privileges consistent with the principles of the common law as interpreted in the light of reason and experience. Even before Rule 501, when this Court had full common law power to recognize privileges, the Court was very parsimonious in the privileges that it would recognize. The Court recognized the common law privilege for trade secrets, a common law privilege for informants, a common law privilege for military secrets. The Court rejected a news gatherer's privilege and an accountant's privilege. Following the adoption of the Federal Rules of Evidence, the Court has continued to be very reluctant to establish new, princi- new privileges. The Court rejected an editorialist privilege, a state legislator's privilege, an accountant's work product privilege, and an academic peer review privilege. When were the Rules of Evidence adopted? Mr. 1973, I believe. Thank you. And the Court limited spousal privileges. The respondents in this case asked the Court to fashion a new broad privilege that would apply to any mental health professional engaged in psychotherapy or counseling. The number of persons engaged in these professions is countless, and the number of conversations that would be protected by this new privilege are countless. Well, it's not countless if they're licensed uh, and, and we can find the privilege to those who are licensed. I assume you could go to every state and count how many licenses there are. Well, except states are each day creating new counselor status position. I think California is now somebody who, after two years of an associate's degree, becomes a certified alcoholic counselor. But are they, are, are they licensed? Do so they have some state certification? Yeah. Is there some document? Yes, they, they receive a state license. And well, then I assume they could be counted. They, they, they can be counted, but it would be, um, it would be a very large number. As the, the and, Mr. Flaxman, they would be counted in a diversity case, is that not right? That's absolutely correct. In a diversity case, the rules of evidence require the federal courts to apply state law in determining privileges. This was not a diversity case. This case, the, there was a federal civil rights claim. Wasn't and, there one state claim in addition? It, there was a wrongful death claim under state law? There was a supplemental claim brought under state law. The pr- pr- The principle that was applied by the district court, that was not questioned by the district court, is that when there is a state law claim and a federal claim that the federal, and there is no federal privilege, the rule would be to admit the admit evidence. Is there precedent that holds that There's the precedent among the, that principle is recognized, I think, uniformly within the circuits. It's consistent with the legislative history. I don't think it's been ruled on by this court. It was not challenged by the respondents in the Court of Appeals, and I don't believe it's within the questions that are presented in the petition for certiorari. I think the question here is that the agreed question is whether there should be a federal privilege for this kind of of evidence. And this kind of evidence that we're focusing on is not confidential communications about dreams or feelings. Well, is it is it different in kind from from the kind of evidence that would be privileged under the clinic under a privilege for clinical psychologists? Does the social worker hear and learn something different? in sort of standard counseling from what a clinical psychologist learns and hears? Well, we don't know on this record what kind of therapy was actually being administered. As a general rule, I think 
a legislature could make a rational distinction between social workers and clinical psychologists and psychiatrists. And because? Say, because they do different kinds of therapy. That's like, what, what, well, what is the difference then? Well, I think as a, a rational distinction, a legislature could say that a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist are going to be more concerned with psychic reality, and a social worker would be more concerned with helping somebody deal with their, the problems that they're facing. We, in the record, I mean, that sounds very sensible, just based on the language we're using uh, as, a, as a matter of uh, positive knowledge, is that correct? It sounds like a reasonable answer, but is it, it true? I guess is what I'm saying. That, that's that's um, unlike the number of people who are licensed, that's an answer. That's a question that can't really be ascertained. It can be debated by scholars. It can be debated by interest groups. Well, can we say that there simply are no clear standard cases on which we could answer that question? In other words, uh, psychiatric social workers do all sorts of things. Who knows what they're doing? Is that, that sort of what you're saying? That's correct. Our approach... So the, well, the brief of the American Psychiatric Association, I take it, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, supports the respondent here, and, and they don't ask that we draw the line that you're suggesting in this colloquy with Justice Souter, that brief, or, or am I incorrect? No, I, I think you're absolutely correct, but I think they're incorrect in reading the record in this case. The record in this case doesn't support the claim that there was psychoanalytic counseling going on with the social worker and respondent resident. The record in this case doesn't reflect anything about the type of well, therapy. Well, but I infer from their position that uh, formal psychiatric or psychoanalytic uh, call, uh, uh, sessions uh, are not necessarily different in, in their objective than clinical counseling in the more ordinary sense, assuming there's an aura of confidentiality about it where the confidentiality is, is expected on both sides. No, I, I think, and I, perhaps I'm misreading their brief, but I think they make a distinction between psychoanalysis and, uh, and counseling. And psychoanalysis is dealing with psychic truth, not with what really happened, but with person's feelings and emotions and dreams about what happened, about someone's childhood. Well, Mr. Flaxman, I, I take it you would not extend in a federal case a privilege to a psychiatrist. That's either. correct. Our primary position is that there should not be any privilege that when yes. there are confidential interests and we regardless of what differences there might be right. in in the therapy or the nature of the question. It's our primary position is that the confidential interest and we concede that there are confidential interests in counseling and therapy. And yet all fifty states recognize some form of privilege in this area? Well, some of the, they recognize some form of privilege. Some of those privileges amount to nothing more than the balancing test, the district judges, the trial judges' discretion that we're seeking in this case. And the states have made different exceptions. And many states... Now, the court below didn't adopt a, a clear rule of there is a privilege and that's that. It, it went on to balance the, the, the need for the evidence? Well, the court below adopted a very unconventional definition of cumulative. It said, I think, that because there were four witnesses who were family members of the deceased and one police officer on the other side in the civil rights case, our learning what the police officer told the social worker, our learning that the police officer had had memory problems would be cumulative. In the area of uh, privileged communications, uh, do the federal courts typically engage in a balancing 
in determining whether to apply the privilege or not? The one circuit that has record, the second circuit, has expressly adopted a balancing test and describes the privilege that it was adopting as nothing more than a requirement that the district judge balance the privacy interests with the opponent's need to know. Well, that's really not much of a privilege, is it? Because if, if, if everything is going to be balanced at the time the evidence is sought to be admitted, the time the privilege is supposed to work is when the person either feels free or does not feel free to confide to the uh, professional therapist. Well, we're not seeking disclosures of confidences about feelings or about dreams. We want to know what the client, what the respondent told the social worker about the incident. That's the district judge said, that's all we can get. Well, but the, the, that may be a very difficult line to draw. Uh, you say you don't want the person's uh, mental reflections and that sort of thing, but it's not always easy to separate those from an account of what happened. Well, it, the, the district judge and the magistrate judge who supervised the, deposi the deposition of the um, respondent didn't have any trouble dealing with that. It was very clear that we could ask, what did you say about the incident? And when we, we tried... Quinn, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I thought that part of what you were asking did involve mental impressions to the extent that you were asking for the notes of the social worker. The notes of the social worker only came up after the respondent testified that she could not recall any of her conversations with the social worker. Are you now conceding that mental impressions of the social worker mental impressions reflected in her notes are things to which you do not have access. As a, as a matter of, of relevancy, that's correct. And the district judge said that we could not get her notes when he was ruling on the relevancy question. The district judge said we could get notes that relate to conversations about the incident. It was after... But the conversations, the notes, mix in, as lawyers' notes do, the social worker's own mental impressions with things that the... That the um, patient or client said about what happened. Well, we were given three pages of heavily redacted notes which made clear the things that the client had said about the incident. One of those things was that in November of 1990... Please just um, straighten me out on what your position is. Do you say... I thought you were objecting to the redactions. Well, I thought you were saying we want the, her notes without we, the editing. We objected to that. The district judge ruled against us and we agree with the We're not challenging the district judge's ruling on that. And we've never challenged the district judge's ruling on the redactions. The district judge held a hearing to inquire about these, I don't recall, these 15 I don't recalls that came from Respondent Redmond when she was asked about the contents of conversations with the social worker. After hearing and observing the character and demeanor of the witness, the district judge said, these denials, these I don't recalls are wholly incredible. And the only way to refresh her recollection is to review all of the notes and the review just for counsel's eyes only. That order about production of the notes wasn't about a privilege or about confidentiality. It was to help us cross-examine her. It was I, a sanction for disobedience. The, 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 the propriety of that particular resolution, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure as before, sir, that the court is interested in, but it seems to me very odd. It's standard for you to ask a witness, have you talked to your attorney? And the unprepared witnesses have said, oh, no. Well, everybody knows that that's incredible. But if the witness responds in that incredible way, that isn't an open door to then inquire about all the conversations with the attorney. That, that's correct. The attorney client... And it seems to me that if this is any kind of a privilege, uh, that the same rule should apply here. If, if she makes a statement that's incredible, that she didn't go to a social worker or that she didn't discuss the event, 
I don't think that necessarily opens the door under the trial judge's ruling to, uh, to, to, to explore everything that was said under any conventional privilege. Now, if you want to have some different sort of privilege here, I, I suppose that's something uh, altogether well, uh, separate. A, a vast difference between conferring with an attorney who is an officer of the court, who is interested in following the law and not helping somebody change their recollections of an incident, to going into therapy. Mr. Flaxman, you say an attorney isn't always interested in changing someone's recollections of an incident? <laughs> an attorney should not be helping somebody change their, their recollections and commit perjury. And if an attorney does that, then the attorney is subject to sanctions. If a therapist does that and helps somebody sleep at night after they did a horrible thing, then the therapist has succeeded. The goals of therapy are quite different than the goals of an attorney. An attorney is ultimately answerable to the court. Mr. Flaxman, you said earlier that, uh, uh, that the privilege uh, uh, recognized by some states, which, uh, which amounts to a balancing of the importance of the, uh, uh, of the information uh, versus uh, the, uh, I, I guess, uh, what? The, uh, uh, the confidentiality of it? That that, that that isn't much different from what would be applied anyway in the absence of a privilege? In some states, there is a judicial override. There's a privilege, there are exceptions to the privilege, and there's a final exception that provided, however, the trial court may, in the exercise of its discretion, uh, allow it in. Or, or allow it to be disclosed. Yeah, but that, that, still is, that still is a privilege of sorts, isn't it? It's a privilege. I mean, it's different from the rule which would be applied otherwise. Um, that's correct. It's like the Second Circuit's privilege that there's just a, a balancing test. Now, any of these privileges that exist in, in other states, has any of them been adopted judicially as a matter of common law? Or are they all legislated? The Alaska Supreme Court adopted an, a state versus Aldred and the Arizona Supreme Court. Other than that, all of the privileges have been adopted by legislators. What is the nature of the Alaska and the Arizona privilege adopted? Uh, the Alaska privilege applied to psychologists and psychiatrists did not extend to social workers. And the absolute? Arizona, that's, that's correct. It's an absolute privilege. Um, no, I, well, I think all of the privileges have been limited with the, the duty to disclose that someone is dangerous or that or that there's a child abuse admission. There are no absolute privileges in psychotherapy in any state in, in this country. And that includes Alaska and Arizona. That's correct. There are always instances where a therapist has to, is required by law to make disclosures. Mm -hmm. And so there can't be this guarantee of absolute privilege which the American Psychiatric Association would, would urge and would seek. You asked us to recognize a line between statements about fact and statements about feeling. And I, I confess that I, I'm skeptical that we could do that. What if somebody says to the, to the social worker or the psychologist, uh, I feel bad uh, about killing somebody? Uh, does that, is, is that uh, on one side of the line or the other? I, I think that's, that's on the side that we don't get. I feel bad. Even a, though there's an admission in it? That, an implicit that, admission that, in it? That's right. I think that invades the confidentiality. Why is an I feel bad feeling about killing somebody fact? I mean, I, because the district judge could say that kind of response is the response that anybody would feel, even if it was justifiable, and the probative value of that statement that I feel bad. But what if he says I didn't do it? The statement I didn't do. I didn't kill anybody. That's his defense. I did not kill anybody. I, I didn't kill anybody. Is a statement about the incident that should be. No, but that's no. I'm saying that's his legal position. I did not kill the decedent that I am accused of killing. 
go back to our statement, I feel bad about killing somebody, does it, is it subject to the privilege? Would it be subject to a privilege or not? I, I, would, uh, I would say that a district judge would require that that denial, which would have to be disclosed, that it wouldn't be privileged, but it would be certain that something that should not be hidden from the government in a criminal case or from a plaintiff in a civil case. So you really can't, there's no analytical distinction then well, between the fact and, and the feeling. Th that's why we believe this should be a question for the district judge who can balance all of these factors in your hypothetical. Yeah, but even on your balancing theory, I thought the judge was supposed to draw, maybe I misunderstood you, I thought the judge was supposed to draw a line between fact and feeling. And what he was supposed to be balancing no, I, uh, was the, the, um, the appropriateness of admitting the fact as against other interests. I think that's one of the things that the trial judge could be balancing, whether it's fact or feeling, but also the need for the evidence. If, if we had a hypothetical with a... Yeah, I don't understand that. The need for the evidence? You, 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 you come here saying there is no privilege, but you're, going to let the, but you're going to let the court balance the need for the evidence? With, with the confidentiality interests that are involved in therapy. Oh, so, okay. So you, you're not denying there ought to be a privilege. We're, we're just I'm, arguing about what the scope of it ought to be. No, I am denying there should be... If there's a privilege, then... See, I thought you were arguing on the basis of relevance before. I thought you were saying the facts come in because they're relevant, the feelings don't come in because they don't, because they aren't relevant. That's there's no balancing there at all. There's a determination of what's fact and what's feeling. Well, but, but, but now you say there is a balancing, so you're willing to acknowledge that some stuff doesn't get in because it's subject to... Uh, uh, what, what I'm willing to say is that in an appropriate case, the district judge could say that these feelings have so little probative value, even if they are relevant, they should not come in. If there was a case where there were five police officers who each say that the officer who shot uh, shot because the man had a knife was about to plunge it into the back of another man, the therapy admissions or the therapy statements of that fifth police officer who did the shooting would have so little probative value that the confidentiality should not be invaded. That really isn't much of a privilege at all. We are saying there should not be a privilege that the district judge should determine she consider relevancy, she consider the confidential interest, she consider the impact of disclosure on the person who's in therapy. Why? 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 Yeah. Because there are confidential interests involved in therapy. Privilege. Not, not, not privilege. Well, not just, privilege. Just, uh, confidential interest. You want us to call it a confidential interest instead of a privilege? Uh, if there is a privilege, then the burden shift of who has to pierce the privilege. In this case, what happened is the respondent came forward and said, I don't have to demonstrate that it was, we were having psychotherapy. I don't have to demonstrate that there was a promise of confidentiality. I don't have to demonstrate that disclosure would interfere with the counseling relationship. All I have to do is to say, I saw a social worker and discuss things with her. But you wouldn't have to say that. Why, 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 in fact, are you saying that there should not be a privilege? I'm not interested in the semantics. I'm interested in this. If a woman goes to a doctor and has a physical problem, there is a privilege for confidential communications between the patient and her doctor made for the purposes of diagnosis or treatment if the doctor is licensed by the state to perform that diagnosis or treatment. Why should there not be precisely the same privilege where the doctor is engaged in diagnosis or treatment of a mental or emotional condition? Why should there be a distinction well, between a doctor who diagnoses a, or treats a mental or emotional condition and a doctor who treats a physical condition, provided that the state licenses the individual to engage in that diagnostic 
or treatment uh, 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 profession. The lower federal courts, and this court has never reached the question, have not saying what the lower. I'm saying what reason is there well, in logic or policy that would make that distinction? There is no reason for a physician-patient privilege, and that privilege is not recognized in the federal court. No, look, I'm asking why, if a person goes to a doctor and the person has cancer, or the person has a skin disease, or the person has an itch. There is a privilege for statements made for purposes of diagnosis or treatment. Why is it every different where instead of seeing the doctor for purposes of diagnosis or treatment of your itch or cancer or worse, you see that doctor or psychologist or social worker licensed to engage in psychotherapy because you have a very serious or less serious mental or emotional problem? Why, why in reason or logic or policy should one try to make such a distinction? Well, the distinction, there, there are many distinctions that can be made, but the fundamental difference that, the fundamental reason why there's no need to make that distinction is because there is no privilege for when you go to a doctor and say, I have a broken foot. I'll try once more. I'm not saying what there is. I'm asking what there should be. And what I'm asking is, if it's only me who's interested, perhaps, but I am interested. I'm interested in, is there any reason in logic, in policy? Is there any reason other than what, if, if pretend courts have held, I don't, I'm not interested for this question what courts have held in the past. I'm interested in whether there is a reason in logic or policy for drawing the line that I just referred to. There's no reason for drawing the line. If the respondent had gone to a physician and in the course of getting treatment for a broken finger said, I can't remember pulling the trigger, that statement should be admissible in the federal Am I not being clear? I'm saying what is the difference whether you go to a physician to diagnose your cancer, skin disease, or whatever, or if you go to a licensed psychologist or psychotherapist or psychiatrist for diagnosis or treatment of a mental or emotional condition. That's, that's why I, that's the line I'm talking about. What's the reason for drawing that line? If the court is willing to recognize a privilege for physician-patient discussions, then the court should recognize a psychotherapist privilege. The court has never recognized the doctor-patient privilege, and the court should not recognize the psychotherapist-client privilege. The in United States, in Upjohn versus United States, the Chief Justice then Justice wrote that the court doesn't lay down broad rules, but decides only the cases before it. I suppose if we did recognize a doctor's privilege, which we haven't, it'd be, it'd be a lot less expensive, wouldn't it? Very few people go to a doctor in order to get treatment and say, I just killed somebody. Whereas a lot of people go to psychiatrists and say, I just killed somebody. I feel really bad about it. I don't think that... I mean, don't, don't you think the cost of the, of the psychiatrist's privilege would be a lot higher than the cost of the medical doctor's privilege? Oh, it, it, it would be, especially in, in a case like this where we had the disclosures made that in November of 1991, which is five or six months after the incident, the respondent Redmond was unable to recall pulling the trigger. That's the kind of information which is relevant to her believability and her ability to come into court and recall and recount what happened, is the kind of information that would be shielded from us by the broad privilege that's sought in this case. How many states have a, a, a physician's privilege, by the way? Virtually all states. Virtually have. all of them, and yet we don't in federal courts. That's correct. 
Have we have, has this court affirmatively disavowed a medical doctor's uh, privilege, uh, or has it just never passed on it? The court has never passed on it. The and court, how about the circuits? The circuits have uniformly rejected a physician privilege. Uh, the circuits have, in generally, recognized a clergy person privilege, and this court has in dicta suggested that there should be such a privilege, and that privilege is quite different than the privilege with a therapist. Somebody goes to a clergy person and talks about having done a horrible thing, the clergy person probably will not engage in 50 or 75 therapy sessions to help the memory. Suppose the clergy person is also a, a licensed um, social worker. The question then is whether the sessions were clerical in nature or counseling in nature. My understanding of clerical... Um, Suppose the answer is both. Uh, that would be a difficult question for the district judge in balance. <laughs> if the clergy person was doing therapy and was helping somebody recall memories or get a sharper recollection of what happened, then it would not be what the organized religion probably would recognize as clerical, uh, clerical uh, penitent counseling. And I think that it's more likely that a clerical person who's confronted with someone who's confessing to a horrible thing would encourage that person to go turn him or, himself, him or herself in rather than helping them process it in their mind so they remember it differently. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time. Very well, Mr. Flaxman. Mr. Rogas? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, in enacting uh, Rule 501, Congress declared that the federal courts are to look to reason and experience in determining evidentiary privileges. The intent behind the rule as evidence both in the legislative history and as acknowledged by this court in the Trammell decision was not to freeze the law of privilege as it existed, but to allow the court's flexibility to develop rules of privilege once again in line with reason and experience. Now, it is true, as Mr. Flaxman has mentioned, that decisions of this court have counseled uh, caution in terms of the recognition of privilege. Uh, however, uh, this court has also uh, stated that when a privilege promotes sufficiently important interests to outweigh the need for probative evidence, recognition and impl implementation of a privilege is proper. Now, in this case, the Seventh Circuit acted consistent with its authority under Rule 501 and consistent with this Court's directive in Trammell and determined that reason and experience justify the recognition. Mr. Rogas, uh, did the Court uh, also balance the need for the evidence with its notion of the privilege? The Court did engage in balancing. Uh, Is that the way that... Uh, federal courts normally approach the exercise of a privilege? That is a, a technique and approach that uh, uh, is used, was mentioned by the Second Circuit in the Doe case. Uh, in actuality, what's at work here? Do you defend that as an appropriate uh, the, the, approach? The need for balancing is appropriate, particularly with respect to uh, determining when an exception to a privilege should come into play. Well, would that be the approach in, in the case of an attorney-client privilege, for example? You balance the need? Well, uh, I, I think that has been done in the sense of the recognition of the privilege, for example, in the crime-fraud exception. While the attorney-client privilege is recognized, uh, and, and there are no uh, other exceptions that come to mind immediately, uh, the crime fraud exception. But that's not balancing. Uh, that, 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 that's that's uh, a boundary to the privilege. It's a, it prevents the abuse of the privilege. It has nothing to do 
with the requirements or the exigencies of, and the necessities of producing the information in a particular case. And I, I'm quite surprised that you support the balancing idea. I should have thought you would say that the privilege either should be granted or that it should. Well, the, the privilege, the underlying privilege should be granted. The balancing that we refer to is uh, the, the balancing of the important interests that are served by recognition of the privilege against the need for probative. Well, is, is that a case-by-case -case balancing? No, not a case-by-case -case balancing. It is a balancing at the policy level weighing the uh, interest, the important interest, against the need for probative evidence. Well, Indeed, it wouldn't matter if it's the only, uh, the only source of this evidence available in this particular case. That wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't be taken. I, I thought that some of the state courts that do balancing would consider that thing, that this thing couldn't be obtained from any other source. It's crucial to the defense or to the... Or to if it were the only evidence available on a material... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, element of a cause of action uh, that would certainly uh, yeah. affect the balancing. Well, I consider that case by case my, myself. Well, the, if, 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 if you subscribe to what Justice Scalia just said, the purpose of the privilege is to enable the attorney or the doctor, whoever, to tell the person, I suppose, that what you say here is confidential. And if instead he has to say what you say here may be confidential, depending on how some future court may balance the need for your testimony, that's uh, much less in the disposed to get people to confide. Well, uh, in this instance, psychotherapists do need to tell their patients, or, or patients do need to know that their communications are confidential. So you're, in effect, starting with a presumption of confidentiality, subject to case-by-case -case balancing uh, on, on the issue of exception? A presumption of uh, confidentiality. Yes. Okay, so that's, that's a much weaker sense of privilege then than, than the sort of classic privileges. We, we did not and we are not asking for recognition of an absolute privilege. Okay. Um, How does it stack up with the, with the doctor? I, mean, that's what I'm, I take it now, I've got to the other side, they're saying, well, it should be the same as the doctor who is diagnosing you for cancer and so forth. Where I'm confused and don't really understand it too well is the status of the doctor and client. Uh, suppose I have a physical injury. In a, in a court. Are you asking for a psychiatric privilege where the doctor with a physical injury wouldn't have one? Are you saying treat both alike? How, what is the relationship? I'm saying if anything, the psychotherapy, uh, psychotherapist patient uh, uh, privilege uh, should be recognized more readily than the doctor patient because of, once again, the uh, uh, nature of the, the, the privacy interests involved, the, the types of things that people go to see psychotherapists for, the types of things that people discuss with psychotherapists that touch upon very, not always, but very frequently, very highly uh, private personal concerns. Uh, so if anything, there is more reason to recognize the psychotherapist. And you think that a doctor doesn't receive uh, communications of a very private nature from a patient? I am not saying that a doctor does not. Uh, Do you concede that there is no doctor-patient privilege recognized in the federal courts? I, I believe that it has not been recognized. but that And that that is the general rule in the courts, in the circuits? I believe that is correct. So what are we supposed to do about that? That's what I mean. Are we supposed to say uh, that just the psychiatrists and psychoanalysts have it, that doctors in general, what are we supposed to do about that? Psychotherapists should have the privilege. We are looking at a, a function, psychotherapy, uh, which does not always coincide with medical practice. There is some overlap, but it does not always coincide. We are zeroing in on the function of psychotherapy 
the treatment and diagnosis of mental and emotional conditions and disorders. You, you keep speaking of the function, uh, and if you speak in terms of the function, then there's never any question as to whether, if a privilege for psychotherapy is recognized, it would cover social workers, as in this case. Let's assume that, that I agree that there ought to be a privilege so far as communications back and forth between the patient and a psychiatrist are concerned and the patient and a clinical psychologist are concerned. Is there a difference between what the clinical psychologist does in the kind of standard case and what the psychiatric social worker does? My understanding, based upon what was developed in the record and the research and the information provided by the amici, is that the training, the education, and, and the functioning of clinical social workers approaches, if not equates, to what clinical psychologists do in terms of performing the psychotherapeutic function and doing psychotherapy. They don't have the advanced degree. That's, they, the, that's the only clearly standardized difference. Well, there, there is... Uh, I wouldn't say that one degree is more advanced than another. There are PhDs, for example, in the clinical social work field, just as there are PhD advanced degrees in psychology. Much of the training, the, the clinical experience, as uh, I believe was developed in the record uh, with respect to Ms. Byer, the clinical social worker who was uh, involved in this particular case, uh, demonstrates uh, uh, the amount of experience, the qualitative type of experience she had, much of which overlapped with that which a clinical psychologist... I, as far as method... I'm sorry. I, I, t I take it uh, in line with Justice Souter's questioning that uh, most states license clinical social workers and they pass some sort of an examination. It is, it is our understanding that uh, of the 50 states that recognize privileges, 44 of them do, in fact, uh, extend that privilege to clinical social work. Do those uh, persons who hold that privilege have a duty of confidentiality under their own professional ethical standards? Yes, they do. I believe that that's uh, set forth. But, but you're saying that the courts should not recognize what is generally understood as a duty of confidentiality, even in the uh, patient-doctor patient uh, relation, much less this. If that is what my previous remarks sounded like, that is not what I meant to say. They should recognize the privilege. What is well, I suppose I have a duty of confidentiality if somebody comes up to me and says, uh, let's say my nephew comes up to me and says, uh, you know, Unc, I want to tell you something in strictest confidence. And I say, yes, you tell me that. I promise you I won't tell this to anybody. I mean, is that enough that I've undertaken a duty of confidentiality to justify the creation of a privilege? But you are not uh, engaging uh, under the facts as you've laid them out in, in a psychotherapeutic No, I understand function. that, but I, I just don't see the relevance of the fact that there is a duty of confidentiality. Uh, there, there are duty of, duties of confidentiality in a lot of situations, which we simply utterly ignore. Parent-child, there's no parent-child privilege for Pete's sake. That's, that's certainly a very confidential relationship. This, this arises in the setting of, of a professional approach to psychotherapy. Uh, and the importance and value that society puts in, yeah, in having and maintaining uh, such a profession for the purpose of aiding members of society in, in this particular case. The, the fact that allows the fact that a client uh, expects that his communications to an attorney are going to be confidential is relevant in our creation of the privilege, is it not? certainly is an expectation of confidentiality, and there is an expectation of confidentiality and then the protection of private communications when a patient engages in a psychotherapeutic. Okay, so we can draw the line simply by saying the line's got to be drawn somewhere, and we're going to draw it uh, at the point at which the person receiving the communication is licensed by the state. But in principle, 
apart from that line-drawing methodology, there's no reason to draw it there, is there? I have had law clerks tell me things in confidence, uh, and, and I presume they felt better after telling me. Uh, uh, I assume there was some value to it, uh, but you would not recognize the privilege uh, in that case, but there's no reason in principle why you shouldn't, is there? Well, once again, we are, we are talking about a particular function here. Um, well, the function is feeling better, and I don't denigrate that, by, by telling somebody something. Uh, and, and so the function is being performed, um, talk about poor man psychiatrists, but the function is being performed when they tell me. Uh, but the, the, and, and so it seems to me there's no reason in principle why I shouldn't be able to claim a privilege. And, and your, I think your answer is, well, we've got to draw the line somewhere, John. And, and the difference would be, once again, not only what, how the person feels when they have talked to you, brought to you, whatever their, their, uh, what's on their mind, what they're feeling, etc., but what you in turn can tell them and help them. What can the psychiatrist tell, uh, even, even the, the full-dress full psychiatrist, if we grant the sort of privilege that, uh, that, that you, uh, you want us to grant? What, what, what can you tell the patient? Well, my what do you tell me will, what, probably, m most likely, be held in confidence? What you will tell me will be held in confidence. You can't say that. You, you, acknowledge, you acknowledge exceptions. There are uh, some exceptions that have been noted uh, by the courts based on... Is there any state that has no exceptions? No, I believe they all have at least one exception. And some have very broad exceptions. If it's important enough, you can get it in, right? That would be correct. Well, what, what could a psychiatrist possibly comfort his patient with? What kind of assurance could he possibly comfort his patient because, with in, in, in that kind of a state? Because the exceptions should be very, very, very narrowly, and uh, there should be very few exceptions, and they should be very narrowly drawn to fit only certain categorical situations. For, for example, I believe one of the uh, instances that was referred to during Mr. Flaxman's argument was uh, if something should be mentioned uh, in terms of a, a definite threat of harm to a specifically identified individual. A person goes in, talks to their therapist, and says, I'm going to kill Joe Smith. Uh, and there is no reason for the clinician to doubt that that person is in fact capable of and will and would carry out that specific threat to Joe Smith. In that instance, uh, most of the states, I believe, have recognized a, a very narrowly drawn privilege, once again, arising uh, out of uh, the fact that, that that very specific threat to that one very specific individual is there. But I take it even on your scheme, if Smith is dead uh, and an admission has been made to a psychiatric social worker and to no one else, uh, and a case cannot be proven without that beyond a reasonable doubt, without that admission, you would have let the admission in, wouldn't you? Under the... Uh, if, if it were the only evidence, and I, I right, my hypo, my hypo, then I, I you'd let it. There, there have been cases that allow that testimony, and under so the whatever the value of being able to assure the patient of confidentiality may be, on your theory, that value would be absent because the social worker, the psychiatrist, the psychologist could not say what you tell me is in confidence. All he could say is. What you tell me will be kept confidential unless they need it badly enough. Yes, in a sense. All right. Based on now, what about a case like this in which there is a, uh, there is a claim that, uh, that memory enhancement may be involved? 
uh, memory enhancement uh, is, is, uh, is, is a lot like the, uh, given the possibility that the memory enhancement, in fact, uh, is memory change, I would suppose that that kind of evidence could be just as crucial uh, as, the, as the, the, the unique evidence of, of guilt. Why shouldn't, the, uh, uh, why shouldn't an exception be recognized for, for cases in which there is a colorable claim that memory enhancement went on? Several points in response to that. Uh, first of all, the record does, does not give any indication whatsoever that there was such enhancement. Secondly, uh, as the court... There, said, there are grounds for some suspicion. Would state law in this case have allowed an exception for this evidence to come Under in? Under the uh, law of the state of Illinois, no, I believe it would have been privileged. And you don't rely, apparently, in giving your responses on what state law allows or doesn't allow. You're, you're going to have us decided on the basis of whether it would be needed or not? As the court uh, indicated in Trammell, we certainly, in terms of formulating the federal rule, can look to state law for guidance, but inasmuch as there was a federal question involved in this case, and under the language of 501, we can look to state law for guidance, but state law as state law would not control the question. All right. Well, what does 501 tell us? It tells us that the privilege of a witness shall be governed by the principles of the common law as they may be interpreted by the courts of the United States in the light of reason and experience. Now, what do you think the common law provides? At the common law prior to the early 70s, there was no uh, vast uh, body of case law uh, indicating one way or the other whether there was a psychotherapist patient privilege or not. There were courts that were starting to entertain uh, the notion of a psychotherapist patient privilege based on the analysis provided by many of the commentators. It was at about that same time that many of the courts were getting involved in, in addressing that issue uh, that many of the legislatures uh, simultaneously also began taking action in terms of um, not only uh, looking at, for example, the social work profession and stepping up the amount of state regulation of the profession itself, but also enacting uh, provisions uh, providing uh, for a privilege. We look to for the con determining what the principles of the common law are here. Well, the principles of the common law would, would basically we would look to the development of the law through cases and, and court decisions. That is correct. And as of the time 501 was enacted, uh, once again, no, there was not a Mr. Rungus, do you know if there are any states that recognize a psychotherapist privilege and do not recognize a doctor-patient privilege? Offhand, I do not know the answer to that question. I do not. Mr. Rungus, Mr. Flaxman said that there were two states that had this privilege by virtue of court decisions. You just explained that the, the development was courts were active, legislatures were responding. It was a kind of a dialogue. Do, do you know how many, in how many states the privilege notion began in the courts? That it was, there was first the court declaration and then there was legis legislative codification? Um, I do not know specifically how many. It was very few. Very few. My, my understanding is, is just a handful of states where that is the case. Why shouldn't we do the same? I mean, I have no doubt we, we have the power to, uh, to pronounce a common law rule, but... The variety of rules in, 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 in the states is, is so diverse. Uh, and, and in that I wouldn't know which common law rule to adopt. Why shouldn't we say it? it you know, it looks like pretty much a, a policy call that uh, different states uh, have done different ways, and, and I don't know why we should 
pick one of these uh, infinite varieties of laws and impose them on the federal courts. But the basic thrust of what has been going on in the states is to recognize the privilege, and, and given once again that... It doesn't get you anywhere. You don't even know what privilege means. I mean, as you've described to us, in some states it means very little. It, it means only we'll think about whether it's important enough, and if it is, you, you, you can't, you, if it isn't important enough, you can't get it. It, I, I don't view this as, a, as, a, as a, a solid basis for saying, yes, the common law has developed uh, in a certain way. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Feldman. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Rule 501 provides that the privilege of a witness shall be governed by the principles, not the specific privileges, but the principles of the common law as interpreted by the courts of the United States in the light of reason and experience. In our view, the most significant uh, feature to look to in determining what reason and experience tells us here is the fact that all 50 states have recognized the privilege uh, in one They recognize something. Uh, I mean, your, your brother was just saying that, I think, that uh, that what we should recognize is a presumption of confidentiality subject to exception by weighing. If we go no further than to do that, is it even worth the trouble? I, Why bother? Well, I actually, we, it's not our position that that's, that, that's what the, that that's what the court ought to do. Well, what's your, what's your position our, on the value of, of, a, of, a, of the kind of presumption that he was arguing for? Is that worth the trouble? I, I think it would have some value, in, some incremental value in increasing the confidence of patients that their uh, uh, communications would be confidential, but I don't think it would have the kind of value that the states generally uh, have recognized when they've if, adopted it. If that's it. all we did, should we do it at all? Yes, I think that the, I think that, that, would be a, that would be something useful to do. It's not our position that that's what the courts ought to do. I think under Rule 501, the federal courts ought to take a cautious view towards the uh, uh, recognition of privileges and ought to be sure to recognize uh, 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 the general policy of the federal rules in favor of the admissibility of evidence. But where a privilege is justified, and especially where the 50 states have, so, have, have at least uniformly recognized the important interests that are at stake in a case like this, I think the federal courts uh, uh, should do likewise. The fact that all 50 states have recognized it, I think, shows that they recognize the importance of psychotherapy in, in the relief of uh, mental and psychological distress for people. I think they've recognized the need for confidentiality, the very strong need for confidentiality. Mr. Calvin, how could you justify a psychologist, social worker privilege uh, without recognizing a medical doctor privilege? There has been a, uh, in, my, in our view, the case for medical doctor privilege has not yet been compellingly enough made, and I'll tell you why. First, there are fewer states that recognize it. Second, if you look at the way the states recognize it, they generally, uh, uh, it generally has even more exceptions, and uh, uh, there's, even le there's less of it than with respect to psychotherapist patient privilege. As the advisory committee on the proposed rules in 1973, or uh, around the, uh, uh, recognized, um, the, and if you look at their commentary on the psychotherapist patient privilege, which was in those proposed rules and the doctor patient privilege was not, they noted that uh, uh, commu confidential communications are even more important for the successful practice of psychotherapy than for the successful practice oh, of medicine. Th that's, that's just exactly. What can I read to find out about this? I mean, I'm used to, as many of us, uh, having diversity cases where, of course, there is a, the privilege you're arguing for and also a medical doctor privilege. That's the normal case that we find it in. 
I've never had a case, I don't think, where it came out of the federal system in a medical doctor. But Mr. Flaxman seems to agree. I agree with him. I don't know how you'd, how you'd distinguish between a patient who comes in with a gunshot wound and the doctor's got to find out what happens and a psychiatric social worker who says, I'd like you to tell me uh, what your problem was in, in this case or some other. How can you do the one without the other? And what were the objections to the doctor privilege? Why wasn't a rule written on that? What, what, where do I, what do I read to find out about this? It didn't seem to be very fully developed in the briefs. In the advisory committee notes on rule, proposed Rule 504, they do specifically go into that question, and they cite a previous paper that was uh, issued by the Group for the Advancement of uh, Psychology, or I don't remember, recall the exact name, that, that ex, uh, explored the subject more fully. There's also been a, a number of other things that are cited uh, throughout the amicus briefs about it. But the general point and the general reason why, you, why the states have, have seen fit uh, to recognize one to a greater extent than the other is that although confidentiality is no doubt important for the practice of medicine, it's important for the practice of many things. It's probably important for accountants. It's, important, it's, it's a generally an important value. But the extraordinary level of confidentiality that uh, a privilege involves, that step should only be taken where it's clearly justified. Mr. Feldman, why, let's assume that, a, that, that, that the consultation occurs in a state that has the very negligible, under state law, the very negligible privilege that you, that you said it's worth adopting but it won't do a whole lot of good. So all, all that that person can tell the client is, you know, in, under state law, you have very little assurance of confidentiality. Why should a federal court accord to that social worker or psychiatrist a greater degree of confidentiality than the state itself. Shouldn't the maximum federal protection be where the consultation has occurred in state X, we will accord whatever confidentiality the, the, the courts of state X accord. I, I can't see any federal justification for going further than that. That, that would, or any use for that matter. That would certainly be a possible rule to set the federal uh, uh, ceiling uh, at the state floor. That's wonderful, but can we do that under, under the federal rule? Right. It seems to me the federal rule has to be uniform, so isn't this eminently an area that we should leave to legislation? I think that, that I, get, I have two answers. I think, first of all, I think Congress has made it quite clear, and the court has said in its opinion, that this is something that the courts have to, have to grapple with one way or the other, a decision one way or the other, a decision not to recognize a privilege in a state that has a very strong privilege, for example, is going to do some damage to that state's policies and, and, and what that state has recognized as necessary for the advancement of uh, or for well, the success of Well, it's not just that therapy. state's policy. It's according to the licensure system, the licensing system of the state, more dignity than the state itself gives. But, and, I, and I have the same trouble as Justice I, Scalia does. I, I'm not sure how to handle that. I, I wanted to get to the second point, which was that in our, our brief, we suggest that the key question is whether a confidential relationship is formed. And that question, since states are the primary uh, level of government that uh, governs the relationships of psychotherapists and patients, as with most other professions, the question of whether a confidential relationship, a highly confidential and extraordinarily confidential relationship is formed, I think it's reasonable to look to state law for that. So you look to licensing plus the extended privilege, state by state? I think you'd look to the question of whether the privilege extends to this kind of a relationship. As far as the specific narrow exception... Under, under the rubric of whether or not there's a reasonable justification to believe that the communication is confidential? Under the rubric of if there's of the federal privilege, a, a, necess, a necessity for the application of any privilege is that a confidential relationship is formed. In the attorney-client privilege, if you're not a member of the bar in a given state, the state gets to determine who's a member of the bar. If you're not a member of the bar, there's, there's no question that you don't have a privilege in federal court. Um, and similar with the marital privilege and other kinds of privileges. 
In the same way, it's up to the state to determine whether a confidential relationship has been formed. And a, that is a, that's, a, that's a, a prerequisite for the application of the federal privilege. Once you have that, I think the exceptions in the states follow enough of a pattern that... Solomon, in this case, would, the, would Illinois have recognized the privilege for what's at issue here? Yes. The Seventh Circuit so held, in fact. I, I, I was unclear on, on your answer a moment ago. Are, are you still arguing for a uniform federal rule on privilege? Or yes. Are you arguing, so you're not arguing for a, a rule that would vary from state to state? It would... No more. Okay. But the reason I, let me tell you why I asked the question. The, the part of the, the premise of your argument uh, is the value of recognizing the privilege uh, depends upon the value of the confidentiality uh, in the relationship. Now, we can't tell what the value of the confidentiality in the relationship is unless we go state by state and find out which states have strong privileges, which states have just weak privileges. Uh, and so I guess what we would have to do is to say, well, if a majority of the states have really strong privileges, that would probably justify our recognition of a strong privilege. But if a majority of the states have a weak privilege, it wouldn't do any good for us, at least in those states, to recognize a strong privilege because it, it, would, it would have no effect on the relationship. The, the, the social worker would have to say, I can't guarantee much. Is that what we should do, is sort of do a, a nose count and find out whether we're going to get much for our privilege or a little for our privilege? I think not, qu not quite. I th what the federal courts should do is look to see whether the state recognizes, for instance, a, 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 a relationship between a, social, a psychiatric social worker and a, cli and a client as being one that's entitled to a very, a very high degree confidentiality protection as, and of course it a privilege. If in that state the state has said, Social workers in this state, you can go to see a social worker, but we're not going to accord it any privilege at all. It's just not that confidential a relationship. You don't have a reasonable expectation that a confident, it would be like going to see somebody about a legal problem who's not a lawyer. You can do it, I suppose, but you can't, it's not going to be privileged. Yeah, but on your understanding, if there were 45 states that recognized uh, a, uh, a, a social worker's privilege and five that didn't, you would say we ought to recognize it. Right? I, I, I think as a uniform federal. No, no. I think no. the federal rule should be that where the state recognizes a confidential relationship, uh, it recognizes a privilege with respect to a, a given uh, a given category of provider. That in those cases, I, I think there's enough uniformity in the states uh, to say that that a federal privilege is also warranted. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Mr. Flaxman, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you. Uh, I have always been tantalized by the idea that if you tell someone, you tell this to me, I'll keep it a secret, that that should be a privilege, that the court should enforce that kind of promise. And as a matter of fact, that used to be the law. It used to be called the gentleman's privilege. I think in about the 18th century, the 17th century, courts stopped enforcing that privilege. In uh, Brandsburg versus Hayes, this court explicitly recognized that that used to be the law and it is no longer the law. The question of whether the confidential communication should be recognized by, protected by a privilege or protected by case-by-case -case balancing, I think, should be answered in favor of case-by-case -case balancing. Could I ask a question about state law? I assume that even in Illinois, the, the Illinois uh, uh, psychiatrist or social worker could not give assurance that even a state law action would not require testing. It would depend on where the action came up. I assume that an Indiana court would apply Indiana's uh, uh, rules. Isn't that right? 
so that if the lawsuit were in Indiana, the Illinois social worker, by re reason of being an Illinois social worker, wouldn't have a special privilege in Indiana. That, that, that's what I believe the courts would do. The, the question about... No, I'm not saying what it should do. That, 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 Isn't that the that, way things work? That's that the these, way... These are forum rules. Yes. So that Illinois can only assure that an Illinois social worker will not be compelled to testify in an Illinois forum. That's correct. But Illinois can't even make that assurance because the common law trend of courts has not been to create privileges. It's been to create exceptions to broad statutory privileges. We've seen that in Illinois where there aren't exceptions for evidence that might be relevant in a criminal case where the courts have created an exception. You, do you agree that this the communication would be privileged in the Illinois courts? You don't? I, I agree that we don't know, and we wouldn't know unless we litigated it in the Illinois courts. There's just a recent amendment to the Illinois statute which says that a social worker could reveal uh, confidential communications to her employer. And if this was in state court, we would argue that this exception and all the other exceptions require the courts, when the evidence is crucial, as we would argue it is crucial in this case, to fashion yet another exception. And courts in other states... And is it true that the rule they apply is, is governed in the state law cases, is governed by the law in the in the state where the conversation occurred rather than where the case is being tried? I think it's the, with the conversation where the case is being tried rather than where it occurred. I think it's a forum rule on that. But I, these, these questions have not arisen that why, why, why has it never arisen where someone in, uh, you've practiced a lot in 1983 cases. Say, why, has no one ever tried to subpoena medical records from a hospital or a doctor's private, uh, you know, medical doctor's private records? Why, why have we never had to face the problem of the uh, uh, gunshot wound or the medical doctor who's dealing with physical problems? We, we don't face that problem because the district judges uniformly say that there's no privilege if it's relevant. Yeah, wouldn't you think some doctor somewhere or a hospital somewhere would have faced a subpoena for some confidential patient records and would have asked us? Uh, that hasn't happened, and I don't think it's it just, it just routinely accepted. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Flaxman. The case is submitted.